Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3RRR. This is a science show we've got you here listening to for another hour. In the studio with me is Dr. Ailey, one of our climatologists. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you going? Good. You've been like three weeks in a row or something. I know. I know. I'm just loving on? this place this year. It's great. Well, you know, climate's important. It is. Yeah. And you've got nowhere else to go. <laughs> it's true. I have no life. <laughs> Dr. Crystal, good morning. Good morning. It's nice to have some science on the Sunday. Yeah. Yeah, a whole hour. I know. I hope people can handle it. It's going to be big today. Dr. Ailey? No, you've already... What? That's the other climatologist. I'm Dr. <laughs> oh, Linden. Oh, you're like Dr. Linden. My God, what am I doing? Have a coffee, Dr. Did I? Well, I did, but uh, big night last night. Ah, right. Big night. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I sat there watching television. I thought it smelled like hangover in here. No, is it? No. <laughs> that's right. the weird thing. I'm not. I wish I was, but I'm not. Actually, I think I ate something bad last night. I didn't sleep well. Aww. Nothing came back, but it was, uh, it was a bit, yeah, a bit disturbing. Anyway, you were... I am well. Yes, thank you, Dr. Shane. It's lovely. It's a, it's beautiful outside today, calm and a bit humid and, I don't know. Yeah, yeah it's, it's nice well. weather. Nice weather. But it's too in. Sydney for me. No. Uh, I like the dry heat. You know, I, 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 worry, I worry that because people say, oh, summer's done. I'm like, have nah. you been here in March and April? Yeah, seriously. Like, it's yeah. just starting up, yeah. folks. Yeah, yeah March heat waves, here we come. Yeah. So anyway, we have to immediately get on to our first guest because he's on the phone. He's down in Macedon and uh, we thought we'd have a quick chat to him. Uh, Dr. Dermot Henry is the Head of Science at Museum Victoria. Dermot, can you hear us? Uh, yes, I can. Thanks, Shane. Uh, Dermot, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I just wanted to talk to you briefly about the fact that all the directors of Australia's leading natural history museums have, in the last week, put out a joint statement um, about uh, sort of what needs to be done with regards to our biodiversity. Can you give us a bit of, bit of uh, more information on that? Yep, look, uh, the, uh, the directors of the Natural History Museums um, put out a, a statement, um, uh, I guess, asking for a support in increase in funding and, uh, I guess, a coordinated action um, plan to address the impacts of climate change on, on the nation's biodiversity, particularly following the bushfires, but also that um, you know, with climate change... Um, uh, gathering pace, you know, we're seeing the warmings of the oceans, we're seeing the impact of that on the barrier reef as well, and um, we, we need to have um, I guess coordinated national strategies on how we preserve our biodiversity. Mm. So, uh, one of the things I find when I often talk to people about some of our zoos is they're, they're surprised to hear that they have roles in regards to conservation. Similarly with the museum, I'm not sure many people would be aware of just how involved some of our museums are in this work. Can you tell us what, what sort of yeah, things do you do? So, so we, um, the, the museum's been, I guess, uh, mapping um, our biodiversity for 165 years. So, our uh, very large natural science collections, which we've got about 16 million specimens, um, uh, I guess create a baseline of um, the biodiversity, both in a geographic sense and also in a in a temporal sense. So you know, we know that a, an animal existed at a place in time, and so we can go back there and see whether it still exists today. Uh, so we have a large team of zoologists, 
um, that are doing a lot of work and some of them are doing uh, uh, research into the impact of bushfires on um, specific um, species and uh, particularly threatened species. So we had people, for example, out there after the 2009 bushfires looking at the impact of the fire on the frogs. Um, around King Lake and places like that. And um, what they discovered was there were lots of frogs bounced back after it, but when they started looking at the genetics, they were all kissing cousins and uh, a lot of inbreeding going on, which means those populations aren't particularly genetically robust, makes them more vulnerable to disease and, um, you know, Mm. uh, continued bushfire would probably... um, cause those populations to collapse yeah in terms of the museum's collections approximately how much do we see when we go to the museum because i remember years ago having this discussion with the sort of the the rock exhibit and how there was a very small amount on display relative to the tons that you had somewhere in the basement with with other parts of the collection i mean how much more is there that we just don't see when we go to the museum less than one percent of the museum's collections are on display but um the the bulk of the collections are actually being used for research purposes and we not only our own researchers but we provide material to researchers around australia and overseas um uh and and we get a lot of people coming to the museum to work on our collections as well so uh, people always just think of uh, the front of the house the mm. exhibits uh, which are fantastic, but actually there's an enormous amount of work goes on in the collections behind the scenes. Yeah, and how connected are you to museums internationally? Because there are some spectacular museums around the world, and this is a global problem that we're dealing with. So are all the museums connecting up as a result of this, or were they always connected? Yeah, we're all, we've always been connected, and um, I guess now in the internet age we can do things overnight, whereas in the old days... Back in the 1860s, they'd write a letter and wait six months. Um, but all of our researchers are in... Uh, w- w- they're not working independently. They're working in collaborations with people both across Australia but also um, in overseas institutions as well. Hi, Dermot. It's Dr Crystal here. Um, I know that at the museum there's a fantastic exhibit around um, the First Nations people. Um, what, what going forward do you think the museum can do to really... Um, connect Australians into uh, sort of some of the cultural understanding and the First Nations understanding of, um, of, uh, of, of the landscape? Well, I, I uh, think there are great opportunities there around science and First Peoples because uh, First Peoples have been in the landscape for, you know, 40, 50, maybe 60,000 years or more, and they knew a lot about it. And, um, uh, and also... Um, I, I think that uh, it's another it's another data set. So um, a young woman, Erin uh, Matchin at the University of Melbourne, has just got a paper coming out on the dating of volcanoes in Western Victoria, and there are first people's stories around those volcanoes erupting, hmm. and so there are eyewitness accounts to, to some extent. So I think absolutely there are great opportunities for science and first peoples to um, be sharing our knowledges. Hmm. Well, Dermot, look, it's great to hear that the museums are all across Australia doing doing their part in this, and I think it's it's interesting how in, in, invisible some of that is sometimes, and I don't think many people are aware when they go into museums. As you say, only 1% of the collection's on, on display. It would be great, I think, if people were more aware of just how much is going on behind the scenes. So great to see you guys doing that. Thanks so much for chatting, us, chatting to us today, and uh, good luck with the ongoing work. Great. Thanks, Shane. Thanks, Dermot. 
That was Dermot Henry, the head of science at Museum Victoria. We're going to take a break for some music, folks, and we'll be back in just a moment with our first in-person guest in the studio today. Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo. In the studio with us now is Dr. Aaron Elborn. He is from the Department of Applied Chemistry and Environmental Science at RMIT University. Aaron, welcome to the studio of Triple R. Uh, thank you very much for having me. It's it's great to have you in because you work in something that's um it's it's a fascinating area of antimicrobial resistance and ways in which you know we might be dealing with that. And I suppose when I think about the department you're in, I don't immediately think of, oh, you guys are working on this stuff. Like it's, it's a yeah. very different approach that you're taking. Yeah, our, our team by nature is quite you know, interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary mm. approaches. So I'm actually a chemist by training, a physical yep. chemist, yep. Um, but I work with microbiologists, chemical engineers, electrical engineers, um, as well as a wide variety of other scientists that we can use to get mm. the job done. So if you've got the skills that are going to help us actually tackle this problem, why not use them? Yep. Now, in terms of the, the problem itself, give us a bit of an idea of where we are with regards to antibiotic use and, you know, what's coming. I mean, yep. how, we, we hear a lot of scary stories, but, uh, I mean, where are we in reality? Yeah, it, it's fairly doom and gloom, unfortunately. The um, World Health Organization statistics are showing us that by about 2050, there'll be approximately 10 million people per year dying of infections. Mm. Uh, based on microbes that we used to be able to treat. Um, To put that into a little bit of context, currently per year you get 9.7 million people die of cancer and cancer-related illnesses. So it's actually going to be a real problem. It's going to affect people in our country, other people's country, and a lot of people think this is going to be a developing nations issue, you know, where Mm -hmm. there are more microbes, less ability to treat it, but it's going to become extremely scary, and it will be a situation where if you get a simple cut, go in for a simple revision search, surgery, things like that, if the antibiotics all stop working, we're not going to be able to treat it. You'll literally be going back to a prebiotic era where we're going to have situations where you have an infection. Unfortunately, we're just going to see how this works out. Mm. You may survive, you may not. Yeah. In, in terms of the sorts of bacteria we're talking about yep. here, I mean, these are often simple things, aren't they? They're, yeah. not, they're not real big, nasty things. They're relatively no. simple infections yep. that kill you, right? Yeah. So, it, and these are... These are resistant because... So uh, the the term that you would have heard was maybe superbugs. Mm-hmm. A, a common example I can give you that you, most people would understand would be like golden staff that's just in the hospitals at yep. the moment. Um, now, these bacteria are everywhere. You actually have golden staff on your skin right now. So we're sitting in the studio and we've got it on our skin. Um, there's also oral bacteria and stuff like that that are just normally in your mouth. But sometimes when you get a, a an infection, it's just because the bugs have gotten into your uh, soft tissue and they've set up a colony and they start to infect. Uh, the ability for them to be resistant to antibiotics is basically natural selection and evolution in work, except because human beings themselves, they can produce one baby every approximate year. Um, one single bacterium can become one billion bacterium overnight. Yep. So they can divide and multiply so fast that if you have a single bacterium that becomes resistant just by nature or evolution, it suddenly doubles and you've got a superbug sitting there that's mm. possible to resist whatever it's resistant to, whether that be your normal uh, methicillin-based antibiotics or other new antibiotics that are coming through the pipeline. But yeah. it's quite scary because they can then also share their genetics with other bacterium and basically uh, 
encode new ways to become resistant between each other. So it's not just as simple as we get rid of the resistive species, they get together and talk and allow themselves to develop resistance together as well. Wow, it's fascinating. Most of my knowledge of this comes from a film called The Andromeda Strain, so it's good to hear it from the source. Yes. Uh, <laughs> in terms of the approach you guys are taking, though, yes. this is very different. This is, this is more what I would call a physical or mechanical attack on these bacteria. I mean, talk us through how this works. Yeah, sure. That's, that's exactly right. Um, we started looking at non-drug-based or non-antibiotic ways that we can possibly kill bacteria. And um, the way that we've been looking at it at the moment is that of a physical nature. So the best way that I've been able to explain this is that you, can, uh, you can't really become resistant to being punched or physically stabbed or attacked. So we thought, is there a way that we can make a very small nanoparticle, move it physically and push it against some bacteria and see what happens? Um, the method we came up with was using some magnetically activated liquid metal particles. These liquid metal particles are uh, liquid by nature, obviously, and when you apply a magnetic field, they undulate, change shape and become atomically sharp, and then we can control that magnetic field and push them into the side of the bacteria, which essentially, for lack of a better word, shreds them apart. Hmm. Um, the interesting thing here as well is that we can actually treat what we call a full biofilm so a biofilm is not just a single bacteria it's the agglomeration of a bunch of bacteria all sitting on a surface together it's a small colony that's where they become protected and they sort of naturally yep. want to be and we can actually pull that biofilm apart whilst killing the bacteria and inactivating them at the same time so potentially we have a me method now of introducing these small nanoparticles to let's say a site of infection and possibly scrubbing the infection away and ripping it up now, let me just one quick question for because the team is bursting. Yes, to, I've to just seen them. that. Yeah, they've just gone nuts. <laughs> yeah. um, but this to me seems to be a, a methodology that's independent of the bacteria you're talking about. Yes, uh, and the, we did two bacteriums to start with that were model. We did golden staph and we did another oral bacterium. Uh, we're now moving on to multi-bacterial uh, species and other species to see if this works across the board. Mm, so my question then, Dr. Linden here, thinking yeah. about tiny little punching robots coming in yes. and shredding uh, nasty bugs apart is how are they going to tell the difference between the nasty bugs oh, everybody's was that yep. everybody's question <laughs> How do they tell the difference between the nasty bits and the good bits? Yes, so that's, that's 100% true. Um, we had thought about that and we did some uh, human-like cell studies where we put the particles in contact with human-like cells, mammalian cells, and they actually didn't damage them. Um, we were a little bit shocked. I was hesitant to do the study to start with. I was like, oh, this is going to be a bad answer. I don't want to know yet. We did it, and it seems that because the mammalian cells that you have in your body are an order of magnitude bigger than bacteriums and they're a lot squishier too their actual cell wall is more like a balloon instead of like a hard rigid cell that you have with a bacterium we think there's a difference between their physiology there that allows us to kill the bacteria but the human cells are unharmed by it at the moment but does that mean then there's a chance you could kill healthy bacteria i mean some bacteria in yeah. our bodies are good right is sure. that a risk yeah that's that's 100 right but um this treatment wouldn't be let's say just put into your bloodstream and allowed to move around you'd have to be using it as a site specific treatment so putting it into an exact area and is that because of the magnets yeah <laughs> because i just i yeah. just love that you got that this approach to um overcoming amr 
involves mag- magnets. magnets. <laughs> yeah, you've actually said the exact same thing that one of my good colleagues, uh, Dr. Vikan Trung, that we work with, he basically loves magnets and the fact that we're using them, he's obsessed with them and sits in the lab playing. Um, but yes, it would have to be a targeted therapy. So you'd have to put the particles into a site, apply the field in a direction that is known in an area that is known and basically put this treatment on for a while. The other interesting thing is it only actually takes 90 minutes approximately for us to kill the infection or the the biofilm itself, which means that I could envisage an area where you had an apparatus that goes over a part of the body where the infection is and then you use the activation of this, turning it on and off as you need it. A little bit like we can do targeted radiotherapy, for example. That's basically the perfect example. Yeah, you can target an area where you know that bad cells are, just like you would with cancer. Here we've got bad cells that are bacterium or a foreign body instead. I think we've done pretty well so far in this interview, not to mention an Arnold Schwarzenegger film to date. You guys must get this all the time. We do, yes. (laughs) And uh, in the presentations that I give at conferences, I actually have (laughs) a slide where I go, now, I know what we're all thinking. I press the clicker and then Arnold Schwarzenegger and the liquid T-1000 comes on screen. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, in terms of the, the materials, though, how do you go about removing them afterwards? Because this is one yep. of the issues with nanoparticles is sure. the contamination of the, bo- yep. the body and not being able to see them for a yes. start. So what, what do you do there to get, so get that out? we haven't gone to mouse model studies yet. That's very important to say. It's been lab-based at the moment. However, there are two methods we're currently thinking of to get rid of it. One is actually using the magnetic field to drag them back out. Mm-hmm. They're magnetic by nature, which means just like you would any sort of magnet, you can collect them by moving another field across. Um the other way that we're looking is basically just using the body's natural ex- um, expulsion mechanisms. There have been some mouse studies using the style of materials for cancer treatment, and it seems that they actually just go outside of the body in its natural pathways. Um, we're only using uh, micrograms of this stuff and nanograms of this stuff. It's very small amounts to get this job done. This seems pretty revolutionary in some respects is australia really leading the world in this space or are you collaborating internationally on this uh work? we are collaborating internationally so this is a collaboration that's going on with north carolina state university as well as we're collaborating with monash university as well um and we've got some colleagues at unsw that we're also working with so it has been a very large study involving a lot of different groups um but i'd say that this study itself is unique in that th- this is the only style of study in this space that we know of at least um i can't say that with hand on the heart absolutely certainty Mm. but i don't know of anyone else that's tried this approach compared to just designing new drugs or using other methods uh, i remember we had a guest on maybe five or ten years ago who were talking about something where the bacterium would lay across something similar to velcro and then they would stretch it and snap it but it was but it was it seemed like very localized like it would be hard to use on a film or yeah that nature you're probably actually speaking about my supervisor there there. Uh, so they came up with nanostructures that allow basically bed of nail style is the best way i can describe that the bacteria sit down and rip themselves yeah this is sort of the grandchild of that idea right, can we right. do it in physical space in three dimensions yeah, who says i don't remember previous guests yeah <laughs> <laughs> so when we're talking about um you know getting this into practice i mean mm. obviously it's just at the early stages yes you said, we haven't even gone to mouse models but yep. say it was successful yep. i mean you know to get a drug into the market yeah. takes such a long yep. time something that's completely new like this how long would this kind of take to, yeah, to go through the um, whole process? It's a really important question, and it's one that unfortunately doesn't have a great answer yet. It is years. Um, like uh, last interviews I've done about this, I don't want to you know overestimate what's going to happen. And basically, the best that I can say is that uh, we're going to go to mouse model. That will inform if we can then move it up into scale, and then quite possibly you'd be able to get it through all the regulators to get it to something that we can actually do in a human-like trial. But that would be 
years of effort and i can't promise that it'll even ever get there it's it's very unfortunate it's just the way it is well aaron it's super cool stuff and i think it's great to see uh local researchers here taking what is a very different approach to this problem because you know just digging up more corals and hoping for the best is not necessarily going to get us out of of trouble here uh we do need a a different approach and and i think a a physical sciences approach to this is very interesting and and fascinating if you can get it to work so keep up the good work uh glad you moved on from the bed now to the the new version that's that's fantastic and uh, i just love the love the fact that you use the terminator stuff in your presentation yes <laughs> people you know they love it um yep. thanks for coming in thank you very much for having me dr aaron elbon is from the department of applied chemistry and environmental science at rmit university we're going to take a break and in a moment we'll be back with our final guest for today and we're going to be talking about virtual reality triple r yeah, welcome back, everybody. It's Einstein and Gogo. We have another guest in the studio now, Dr. Tia Cummins. She is the CEO and founder of a new venture here in Melbourne called VR Core, and she's a neuroscience scientist by training. Tia, welcome to the studio. Hello, thank you for having me. It's great to have you in. Now, you're you're an ex service person yourself, right? I am. Yes. So, tell us a bit about that. What what you know? Yeah. So I was in where, the... when, what you know. So I'm, as you probably tell from my accent. Uh, wasn't brought up here so i'm australian but was brought up in the uk mm-hmm. so whilst i was over there i was in northern ireland that's where i'd spent most of my time and i joined the british army right. so i was in the british army reserves for three years whilst living in northern ireland and then you became a neuroscientist and then i became a neuroscientist Seems like a natural... quite naturally um yeah so i was studying at uni doing my undergrad in psychology and had been in cadets since i was 14 was obsessed yep. with everything army was going to go full-time was going to be an officer, was going to save the world, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so, yeah, I was in the British Army Reserves um, to have a bit of pocket money whilst I was at uni. And one thing led to another, and I found myself in Australia doing a PhD. Hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> now, your, your particular interest now is in PTSD, post-traumatic yes. stress disorder. And is that the, still the standard term? for? You know, because many of these terms are being changed, I've noticed, over the last 10 years. Are we still calling it PTSD? Yes. So PTSD is the disorder whereby you've undergone a traumatic event or mm-hmm. your life or your safety has been put in danger. And then we look for a certain cluster of symptoms. Okay. Um, there are other injuries uh, that can occur as a result of going through a trauma. So, for instance, if you are... A veteran who serves overseas, you may not have PTSD, but you could have something that's known as a moral injury, Mm. where it's just a lot of the things that you've seen conflict with maybe how you perceive yourself and perceive the world around you. But PTSD as a clinical diagnosis is pretty steady nowadays. Mm. And what does that look like for a person in terms of the symptoms? So the symptoms fall into four main clusters. So you've got, first of all, avoidance. So not surprisingly, people with PTSD tend to avoid people, places or things that remind them of the event then you've got something known as hyperarousal which basically just means being really on edge like all the time and this can manifest as having issues concentrating having anger outbursts mm-hmm. um, we also see intrusive memories and flashbacks so re-experiencing the event is sort of the the third main symptom so that can be memories nightmares um dreams etc and then we've got this idea of what's known as negative cognition essentially that just means that you have 
shaped yourself based on your experience of the trauma so maybe you see the trauma and you blame yourself for what happened Mm -hmm. and it's very much impacted how you see yourself and how you see the world around you as well Hmm. And in terms of the uh, sort of standard approaches for treatment, I mean, you, you know, I'm, I'm someone who's who's had PTSD in the past. I didn't believe it for a while. It took a long time for me to actually yeah. accept it. But there were particular treatments, which some of which I found, to be honest, not that helpful. I mean, in fact, one of the best treatments was time. But what do we do as a standard treatment, especially for you know veterans and so forth? Yeah. So PTSD is a bit of a tricky beast. So it doesn't necessarily manifest immediately after the trauma. Hmm. So it can be many years, decades after the trauma that actually the symptoms start to appear and they don't always just appear all at once. So it it can be a very gradual onset, which is what makes it really hard to sort of understand yourself if you are starting to have those symptoms. Now, the, the general treatments fall into a few different categories. One of the the main treatments is exposure therapy. Mm. So you're trying to expose the, um, patient for want of a better word to the trauma that they've gone through so you're trying to kind of rid the memory of any emotion and so that's why you try and re-expose them to the actual trauma but with veterans PTSD is notoriously difficult to treat and that approach doesn't always work which is why we've started to move into virtual reality yeah. um, to see how technology can make these traditional treatments more effective. So what does that look like in terms of virtual reality because one of the things I, I find interesting here is that virtual reality over the last decade has gone from I really see that this is fake to holy crap this shark is attacking me in the shark cage on my playstation you know like it has really notched up in terms of quality and so forth so what would that describe what that would look like in terms of you know treating an an ex-veteran for example with ptsd yeah so with us with vr course we're now developing our technology as the intervention so what we're able to do is recreate an individual's traumatic memory now this is completely tailored completely customizable to the end user so to begin with they might want something that's hyper realistic as you say Mm -hmm. it looks like they're actually being attacked again And that's fine, we can do that. But some people might want something slightly more conceptual or artistic. Maybe they want something that's more like a dream state so they can gradually re-immerse themselves in what's happened. Now, this is done at all times with a trained clinician going through this. You don't do this sort of in your own home. You do do this in a a medical um, facility or Mm -hmm. a practitioner's office. Um, So, yeah, so by being able to recreate the traumatic memory in virtual reality, you can also do things like you can stagger how much they actually see. So if a veteran has been to Baghdad and we're in a roadside bomb, the first session, they might just be in a desert. And then once they're comfortable with that, maybe there's a desert with a road. And then maybe there's some moving vehicles. And you mm. can keep building it up until they're able to go through the full trauma. Right. And not knowing exactly how this works, but I'm assuming there are scenarios where some of our veterans have PTSD because of a single incident. And some of it have would have a similar problem because of a whole range of yeah. time. I mean, how do they differ in terms of the way you would respond to that? Yeah, so you've got what's known as complex PTSD. So a lot of individuals who are attracted to the military, um, research has demonstrated that they have come from broken homes. So Mm -hmm. often you have childhood trauma, which is kind of its own beast that needs to be dealt with. And then you've got individuals who have been deployed who, even if they haven't undergone a trauma in quotation marks they have had that sort of heightened level of stress for six months at a time or longer so it is a very difficult 
beast to tame and i do keep referring it to a beast i think Mm. it's the most accurate way to describe ptsd so at the moment we know that exposure therapy works really well for some people but for veterans it doesn't work that well because it's not immersive enough and as part of your training you are taught to kind of shut down emotions so we're really just kind of getting that top of the iceberg Um, and there is a lot more work that needs to be done but for now we're just focusing on the exposure therapy Mm. sort of reduce symptoms yeah yeah so in that sense i mean you talk about exposing them to the trauma or similar circumstances to the trauma i imagine and pardon the pun here this must be a bit of an ethical minefield um you've talked about how um, clinicians are involved, you know, in terms of, you know, being there while a person has this experience. What other kind of considerations in terms of, of the ethics of creating this hyper-realistic or potentially really hyper-realistic situation do you have to go through? Yeah, so at the moment, exposure therapy is a pen and paper exercise. Mm-hmm. So you undergo trauma and then you write out exactly what happened and there's no way to control how much somebody is engaging with um, that memory. So by doing it in a virtual environment, there is an argument that you're actually decreasing the amount that somebody's exposed to the memory. But of course, with these therapies, there's always a chance of re-traumatizing, which is why we try and do it very, very carefully and very slowly. So with us, we're starting to work with ex-service organizations who can um, sort of allow us to work with their social workers just to check on veterans between sessions and to make sure the family's doing okay. So it's very much a holistic approach and it's not a one-size-fits-all either. It has to be end user slash patient centered. So as a neuroscientist, um, how much do we understand about the biology behind this in terms of what's actually happening in the brain? So with PTSD, it is quite confusing. So for my PhD, I worked with Vietnam veterans who had a history of PTSD or traumatic brain injury. Um, In a lot of cases, they had both. And we wanted to see if there are more at risk for Alzheimer's disease. So what's quite concerning is that previous research has indicated that veterans who have a diagnosis of PTSD are up to twice as likely to be diagnosed with dementia. But this was always based on medical records. It wasn't particularly, um, you know, scientific in the sort of the neuroscience term of the word. So that's why we try to see if this was the case and what the mechanisms involved. So long story short, Our studies involved a lot of neuroimaging, a lot of looking at genetics and cognition, everything we could do. We couldn't find any indication that these guys with PTSD were more at risk of Alzheimer's disease. There really wasn't anything there. But what was interesting is that older gents who have a history of PTSD and are still suffering with it did have some symptoms of dementia in the form of some cognitive decline. So their memory wasn't great. Their attention wasn't great. They weren't really able to sort of learn new bits of information. So that led us to believe that maybe what we're seeing is a pseudo dementia. So we couldn't find any structural changes in the brains of people who have PTSD. That's not to say that we won't at some stage find that. But from what we looked at, we looked at 
hippocampal volumes and a lot of different things in the brain, we couldn't find anything. So to us, it looked like this was very much a psychological condition that should be treatable. Mm. I know you're also looking into the issue of prevention as well. I mean, what would that look like? Is this where you would take service people in and expose them to these scenarios long before they're deployed? Is that what prevention would look like or is it something different? For us, we are looking at using a screening tool at the recruitment stage. Mm -hmm. Now, this is something that will take a couple of years for us to develop. It's very much early stages. It needs a lot of science behind it. But what we're thinking is that if we can have a VR platform that we can use during the recruitment stages, we can actually identify individuals who are less suited to high trauma roles so that they can be deployed appropriately within their organization. So this isn't necessarily just for veterans. This is police firefighters even Mm. other stressful environments work environments as well so that's sort of what we're looking at the moment is just to have like a screening tool to try and help with the prevention yeah tia it feels to me like in the last 15 20 years our understanding of these kinds of disorders or the trauma that um, veterans come home with often has increased we are a bit more aware of this as a society as organizations um Surely this is only one prong in the many prongs that are being used to help minimise and and treat these issues. Do you see or have you seen a decrease in PTSD over time? No. Um, so PTSD has this huge stigma associated Still? with it. Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh. So one of the main issues why veterans are not recovering from PTSD is that they will not seek help. So roughly 50% of veterans with PTSD won't ever seek medical help. Of those that do, just a third will actually respond well to the treatment. So that means you've got two thirds who have tried to get help who aren't any better. And that's just because the treatments aren't working that well for veterans with PTSD. And that's very much the, the cohort that we're trying to target right now. But I think what we're seeing is is more people are slowly starting to become comfortable with saying that they have PTSD or going to see a doctor about it. But unfortunately, it can have massive implications for their career, especially within the military. And and like so many areas of mental health, um, to be frank, Hollywood and and, and so forth has not done a lot of favours here because they only ever portray one version of PTSD, which is the person, you know, crawling around on the floor with a knife in the middle of the night ready to kill their family. And this is not helpful because, as you said, there's many symptoms of PTSD and some of them are very hidden. Yes. and just eat away at you over over time. And if, if those people aren't coming forward, that's particularly problematic. I mean, it'd be nice if there was a, a good series or film or something that sort of outlined what, what PTSD for ex-service people can look like. This is the issue. So a lot of people think, I mean, there's a lot of um, veterans who serve overseas who never fire their rifle. Mm. And, and like a, the vast majority will not fire off around. And they will often say, oh, yeah, well, you know, I didn't really see anything. I didn't even fire my rifle. So how how could I have PTSD? And it is that kind of Hollywood representation of like the sort of Rambos who are running mm. around doing things on their own and obviously they're affected. And that's not the case. And then there's also the issue of people thinking, well, if I if I say that I have PTSD, everyone's going to think I'm really violent and I'm going to get up in the middle of the night and strangle my partner. And that's not the case. Like it can come in 
many forms. Yes, we have this sort of cluster of symptoms that we look for, which help with diagnosis. But within those clusters, like the manifestation of symptoms could be anything, mm. to be honest. So, uh, I mean, this this to me seems to be a no brainer. This is a this is a great approach to take to, you know, desensitizing, etc, treating and, and the screening as well. I mean, how's your company going in, in that sense? I mean, I, I, I could imagine, you know, I would like to imagine that people are just throwing support behind this as a as a way to approach a problem that is not that well managed in our society. Yeah, so we have a large support team. So, I mean, we've been going for just under a year. So we, you know, I, I left my my job to sort of um, be the full-time CEO and founder mm. in March of last year. So we're still quite young. We've just started developing the intervention side of things. So we're working with an amazing production, VR production company, and the end product is going to be 10 times better than what we ever could have imagined. Mm. Um, we have support from the Department of Veterans Affairs who are keen to use us as a service provider once we're up and running. So we will actually be a VR core clinic that veterans will come to to have treatment. And we've got ex-service organizations that are working with us as well. So everybody understands this is an issue. They logically can see why virtual reality will work and how it can work. So now we're just trying to get the funding to actually make everything happen but everything else is is pretty much ready to go yeah well it sounds like a no-brainer in terms of you know people funding this because it is such a big problem and we are entering an era where you know my, my hope i've said many times on the show before is that we stop saying mental health and we just say health yeah because it should be viewed in exactly the same way as a broken leg or diabetes exactly. or anything else and this this separation of it is really problematic and the stigma around things like ptsd are really problematic and i think if people understand more about what's going on they'll be less likely to sort of, you know, be standoffish about it and so forth. Exactly. And our marketing is um, very important to us. So our sort of tagline is Empower the Brave. And we constantly, in all our presentations we do, all the pitches, we constantly try and push the well, the, the truth that this is just another aspect of health. Mm. And when we eventually have our clinic up and running, we are pushing to make sure, you know, it's just like a, a cool juice bar you can just come you know play pool whilst you wait for your um, appointment chill out there's no stigma it's not like a stuffy old um clinical um psychologist's office it's very sort of down to earth and that's what we're trying to push because even if the only thing we're able to do is get more veterans to come and get help mm. we've already won the battle yeah i think that's great i mean it's interesting to me i just reflect on you know if i go and see my psychologist and i'm standing out the front of the place while they open the door i feel something different to when i go and see a physiotherapist yes and i shouldn't exactly. and there's something deeply wrong with that that we have to tackle so look it's great to see you're having a crack at that very brave to uh leave your research career and, and move into something <laughs> like this Any, anyone who starts up a new company is very brave hopefully this will do wonders for many people uh thanks so much for coming and chatting to us Thank today you. Tia Cummins is the CEO and founder of VR Core and uh, hopefully uh, putting together a very, very new and nice suite of activities that will help our ex-service people who and, and current ones who are experiencing PTSD. We're going to take a break for some important station announcements, folks, and we'll be back in just a minute with our news for today, which we've left to the very end. Triple R. Uh, we're back, folks. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. Now, I just wanted to mention quickly that the Breakfast's live compilation, Volume 1, is now available via Bandcamp to stream and download. 
Triple R's put out a compilation of all the tracks that they've been recording live during the breakfasts for 2018 and 19. There's over 50 artists, uh, heaps of good people. You can pay what you want for the release. And oh, cool. all the money raised is going to the First Nations Fire Relief and Animals Australia. Um, just get onto the Triple R website forward slash breakfast is live. It's pretty easy to find. But uh, you can pay what you want. I mean, it's worth, what, a thousand bucks? At least. Yeah. Pay what you want. Anyway, we're going to uh, go into some news now, folks. Dr. Ailey, do you want to start us off? Sure thing. I've actually got some kind of vaguely good news from the world of climate this week. A what? I know. I know. Uh, I've shocked I, you all. I think we could do with some. Yes, well, exactly. Well, this is one of those really good news stories. Well, potentially good news stories. Early days, early days. But um, this is a really interesting study uh, that I saw uh, actually in the chemical journal of all things, but you'll understand why in a second. It's about contrails. So oh, contrails, contrails. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So I'm not going to start talking about these wacky conspiracy theories that some people have. But uh, contrails are basically, you know, these trails um, of condensed stuff that are left behind by planes as they mm. fly along. You see mm. beautiful patterns in the sky. And yeah. if anybody's ever been particularly to the Northern Hemisphere, you can see a lot of these things or watch time-lapse videos of them. Mm. They end up basically making these high decks of what we call cirrus cloud because um, they're just they are little ice particles, basically. Mm. Um, but what these researchers have found, these are some people from Imperial College in London, what they've found, they did some modelling of contrails generated from air traffic over Japan. So they just did one little patch. And what they found was that if you change the altitude at which planes fly by as little as 2,000 feet and you bring them down by 2,000 mm-hmm. feet, you can reduce the... Uh, amount of change that those clouds have on the climate, which I'll explain in a second, by up to 59%. Wow. That's a lot. A little By just dropping the planes by 2,000 feet. Yep. Which is amazing. 33,000 feet down to 31. Yeah. No one cares. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, which is quite amazing, actually. Um, And basically how this works is if you think about how clouds warm or cool the climate, Mm. basically high clouds tend to act as really effective blankets on the Earth, okay? Um, Basically because if they're there, uh, those clouds are very, very cool because they're up way high in the atmosphere. They don't emit a lot of energy, so they don't emit a lot of the heat energy, so they end up being really good absorbers of the energy coming from the surface, whereas the low clouds tend to be really good reflectors of incoming energy and Mm. also because they're quite warm because they're close to the surface of the Earth, they emit a lot of energy as well. So basically if we have more of these um, clouds... clouds. Yeah, exactly. Low clouds, it tends to cool the Earth and more high clouds, it tends to warm the Earth. But what does it do to the efficiency of the planes? Exactly. (laughs) That's a really good question. They fly in the good place. And they looked at that too. So, exactly. They do have to use a little bit more fuel. But, yes, boo, exactly. But their modeling suggests that the extra fuel that they would have to use is offset, and there's a net benefit, Mm. basically. Mm. So, in terms of cooling, there's a net benefit. Net benefit. And um, in terms of flight comfort. I mean, that's sort of a secondary thing, I suppose. But it, I mean, sorry, what? No. Is that is that a term? Flight comfort? 
Well, yeah. No, I'm thinking about I'm thinking about you fly at a certain altitude where the air isn't very dense, and so you're less likely to run into turbulence. turbulence yeah. Clear yeah. air turbulence. These kinds of. On things. a side note, I always love in planes how they say the air the aeroplane is pressurized for your comfort. It's like, well, actually, <laughs> if it wasn't pressurized, I'm pretty sure we'd all be dead. But anyway, <laughs> comfort. You yeah, know. but they could lower the pressure like, so everyone's unconscious. Well, that's true. That's unconscious, true. not I'd dead. I'd be more comfortable if I was unconscious, yeah, frankly, well, on most flights because I'm true. tall. But anyway, I thought it was a bit of good news. It's so, um, yeah, because basically there are some of these contrails that can hang around. It's not all flights. Mm. Some of these contrails under the circum- uh, certain atmospheric circumstances can hang around for kind of 18 hours or so. Oh, right. And it's those particular conditions where you yeah. basically get this generation of, of this deck of high clouds, um, which effectively helps to warm the earth. So, yeah, if you drop the altitude by 2,000 feet, you can you can cool by 50... Well, that aspect of it by 59%. I have no cool doubt that the airlines will all do this tomorrow. Yeah. They are so dedicated to reducing <laughs> oh, yeah. their carbon footprint. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Anyway, good news story, I thought. All right, let's move on to our next climatologist. What have you got, Dr. Linden? I didn't bring any climate science in today. I was interested in this study that piqued my critical thinking uh, wires in my brain this week about a study that came out looking at the link between the number of sexual partners that you have and your risk of cancer. So this Hello. this was a it was an international does it go study. down? Does it go down with more partners? Uh, what do you think? Well, just you know, you're fitter, you're healthier, you're, you're getting ah, out there. Okay, so this this study know. just in the like I just thought I'd bring it in to talk about. Everybody's critical thinking. If you see a headline and you're like, oh, yes, I'll tell people about that. No, you have to read Mm. where this information came from. So this was a cross-sectional study where uh, it was researchers from the UK and all different parts of Europe, but it was using a UK data set where they've been interviewing people off and on since the 90s, different aspects of their health. It's called the English Latitudinal Study of Ageing. So they interviewed over... Uh, 5,000 people who were all over 50 and they interviewed them about all sorts of things, their smoking, their exercise, you know, alcohol consumption, whether they were married, blah, 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 and how many sexual partners they had. They didn't use a continuous scale. They used zero to one, two to four, five to nine, more than 10. Hmm. Have you had more than 10 sexual partners in your life? And then have you had a long-term illness or had you have, have you had a cancer diagnosis? And this study has found a correlation, not a causation, a correlation suggesting that uh, if you have had more than 10 sexual partners, you are there is a slight relationship between having a cancer diagnosis. Interesting. Did they also check Nicolas Cage films? Just mm-hmm. out of- yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, you are also, if you have had more than 10 sexual partners, you are more likely to smoke. You're more likely to be younger. You're more likely to drink alcohol. You're more likely to exercise, which probably would decrease your More likely risk. to be alive. More likely. Well, this is the thing. If More likely to be alive, although if you'd had lots of sexual partners and you had cancer, maybe you wouldn't have been alive to complete the study. Um <laughs> But it just it just set off and so this was many a headlines somewhere. I mean, well, it, it's it's all over the place. Yeah. I've seen it in lots of different spots. And but look, the researchers the researchers didn't draw a straight line. They said, look, we know this study is correlational. We're not saying x equals y, but we are suggesting that mm. maybe because uh, some STIs are linked to an increased risk of cancer. That was going to be my question. Is this a particular type of cancer, like well, no, HPV? You know, human papillomavirus and cervical cancer. They didn't ask about that type of cancer, and they didn't yeah. ask about when you had all these sexual partners. So you could have had a cancer scare 
Yeah. Um, then got real then, active in your exactly. late, late 60s. And then thought, yeah. better I'm make gonna, the most of it. I'm yeah. going to live life, right? So, <laughs> well, so, so maybe the correlation is the other way around. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like a, a, a cancer diagnosis leads to more sexual partners, people. Because, because you just you think, shit, I could go out at any time. <laughs> exactly. I'm getting out there. Yeah. yeah. So not This only, is a good study. Uh, <laughs> the other I, way around. I, I think it is a very powerful reminder that correlation does not equal causation yes. in that just, regard. Just our you know monthly reminder to don't just read the headline, have a bit of a read of yeah. how the analysis was done because this one I just thought, hang on, yeah. I don't know about this. And always check out the Nicholas Cage films. Well, yeah, <laughs> because always most, do that most things are correlated with Nicholas Cage films. I think that was in the supplementary sections. Yeah. I didn't get to yeah. those. Dr. Crystal. Oh, I saw a lovely story this week about um, the discovery of a brand new species of tyrannosaur. Nice. Uh, I All have, for that. I have uh, uh, my three-year-old daughter. I was going to say very yes. excited. By <laughs> my my two children very excited about um, dinosaurs, and they've named it. Let me have a crack at it. What your children have? No, no, no. no. <laughs> the researchers have named it uh, Thanatotheristes, which means the Reaper of Death. Ooh. Why didn't they just call it the Reaper of Death? <laughs> because they did. They called it the Reaper of Death. In, in Greek. In Greek, yes. Yeah. The, 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 uh, the Natothoristes means uh, the Reaper of Death. Um, and it really fills in our gap around the understanding of Tyrannosaur evolution. But what I think is really fascinating is the way it was discovered, because it wasn't discovered by a PhD student digging in the field. It was discovered by a PhD student digging in some boxes at oh, a university. Yeah, hidden boxes in the back Yes. Cupboard. And so uh, the yep. PhD student at the University of Calvary in Canada um, was uh, looking at the evolution of Tyrannosaurus going through boxes of bones and then found this really interesting skull um, you know with really prominent vertical ridges on the upper jaw of this of the of the bone and went hold on this is something that's not like the other ones and and sure enough when they they you know went through and determined that this was actually a new species mm. um, that was in the in the box in the museum and I think it ties in really nicely with our guest earlier who talks about the fact that yes you have all these bones that are on display in a museum yep. but it's all the boxes behind the scenes that are still allowing us to lead to new discoveries today and so they'd been in the museum for over 10 years yeah. and um, it's only now that uh, it's led to the discovery and naming um, at the, from the uh, Royal Tyrrell Museum of Paleontology um, and that was just published in the Cretaceous Research Journal mm. and this uh, particular Tyrannosaurus is 79 million years old which is 12 million years older than T-Rex so kind of gives us an, um, some more information about the evolution of uh, Tyrannosauruses. Mm. It's nice. It's also good because there's all the new te- technologies that are around for examination of these specimens that you know when they were boxed up probably 150 years ago People were using magnifying glasses, you know, like, and now they're chucking them in CT scans and all sorts of stuff. You know, it's really, um, it's cool to see the new technology. And it's there, great so. that, you know, to know that our museums are still providing, you know, the sources of new discoveries yeah, today. That's great stuff. Well, folks, we're going to have to say goodbye to you until uh, next week. Dr. Ailey, great to see you. Good to see you too. Dr. Ailey too. Otherwise known as Dr. <laughs> Linden, good to see you too. You too, Dr. Shay. <laughs> Dr. Crystal, good to see you. Always a pleasure. We, uh, next week, I think we have a special show. It's all dedicated to the bushfire problems over the last... What, I should say five months, shouldn't mm-hmm. they? It doesn't feel like that normally, but it's been a long, long time. So we are going to have a really good show next week. Uh, thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Have a great Sunday, and we will chat to you again soon. Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. 
broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.